Welcome again to another episode of Econ Cafe 2020-21. I'm Mike Mandel, author of the textbook, Economics, the Basics. And I'm Sean Flynn, co-author of the McConnell Principles of Economics textbook and Economics for Dummies. And we're here today to talk about the wonderful world of infrastructure. In particular, we're recording this podcast early April 2021, and President Joe Biden has just put forth his $2.2 trillion infrastructure plan, which covers roads, bridges, dams, electric, water, broadband, housing, education, manufacturing, and a whole host of other things, some of which come under the category of infrastructure and some of which come under the category and expansive definition of infrastructure. We are not going to talk about the details of this proposal because we expect that the details will change over time as Congress chews through it, but we're going to look at the broader economics of infrastructure and public goods and what this all means to us. Sean, what is infrastructure and why do we care about it? So in the most typical constrained traditional definition, infrastructure is all the sort of roads, tools, bridges, things that are man-made or human-made that help us make other stuff. And I know that sounds silly, but I want to exclude like a tool you carry in your pocket. I'm talking sewer systems. I'm talking major airports. I'm talking the electrical grid. It's this bigger set of physical capital objects, as we call them in economics, that help produce stuff. And generally, they're in some sense, typically shared infrastructure. A lot of people use the sewer system. A lot of people use the road system in a town, rather than, you know, talking about the Kerrig coffee maker in your office. So when I think about infrastructure, I think about roads. I mean, in the classic sense is roads and bridges. And roads and bridges are very often built and maintained by the government. And many of our roads and bridges were built in the 1960s or even earlier, and they're aging. Is this, is this aging a problem? Yes. And so nationwide, the, the capital stock, as we call it, all this stuff, the infrastructure, all the tools, about 4% per year rusts away or goes obsolescent. And so that, that's a lot of maintenance and repair that you have to keep up with. And um, that only accelerates over time. You know, if you have a 20-year-old car, seeing how much worse it's going to be in a year, that's a lot worse compared to a car that's only two years old, where it seems like it's barely any older after a year. And so with so much 19th, 18th century infrastructure, in some cases, 20th century infrastructure, a lot of that stuff is towards the end of its useful lifetime, where it's breaking down really rapidly. And so repairs are really uh, urgent at this point. I love that term, end of useful life. I mean, that's a very kind of scary term if you think about stories about bridges that have collapsed. I know that the statistics show that about there's about 600,000 bridges and about one quarter of them are either structurally deficient or functionally obsolete. Now, I don't know what functionally obsolete means, but it doesn't sound very good. Okay, it sounds like we've got to fix them or replace them, right? Yes, yes. And there's, you know, and we're not the only country that has this problem, but because we're an older rich country, as opposed to, say, China, where they've built so much infrastructure in the last 25 years, they, they don't have to worry about the old infrastructure problem. We've been around and rich and well-developed for a long time, which means we've now got a lot of this older infrastructure. And as we saw with the Suez Canal and one boat blocking up world trade, you don't want, say, a major bridge going in and out of uh, New York City. And, you know, it's probably not going to collapse, but it, something will happen such that it has to be shut down for months or weeks for repairs. And then you've now got an economic mini disaster localized, right? And there are so many major bridges like in St. Louis across, you know, the Mississippi and stuff where something similar could happen and have really widespread repercussions. So from the point of view of economic output, the nation's infrastructure is very important for our productivity, for our jobs, 
and for our ability to basically survive as a nation. You know, as you sort of said, there's some bridges out there that if they fell down or became unusable, would effectively cut off commerce for big chunks of an area. Yeah, when I was in college, and God help me, I'm getting older now, this was the early 90s, there was a major earthquake in Los Angeles, and one freeway overpass, I think on the 10 freeway between downtown Los Angeles and out towards Santa Monica, collapsed. You know, there's probably 20 of 15 of those along the way, but one of them, and so that freeway was shut down for many months, and originally they thought it was going to take two years to repair, but they gave a contractor a huge financial incentive, an extra million dollars a day if they got it in early, and they managed to do it really fast. But even then, traffic on the entire west side of LA was snarled for, I think, two months and you know, long commute times and school buses having to be redirected, all sorts of problems. And then, of course, there's the very simple infrastructure of roads with potholes in them. I was just driving in a highway in Washington, D.C., where I live, and the weather had opened up these gaping holes where you sort of had to drive down the road and you had to steer around them. And you kept worrying when you when you ran into one of them at speed that your suspension was going to pop loose. Well, yeah, and people forget that modern automobiles are designed under the assumption that they're driving on nice, paved, smooth roads. Their suspensions, all sorts of stuff to do with their maintenance, only work properly if you're driving over a smooth, paved road. And so, you know, roads and cars were meant to go together. And if you let the roads go to heck, there's so much extra damage to the vehicles. Um, you know, people get into more car accidents, people die from having to swerve and stuff. And so there are actually really intense and major human consequences to letting those potholes be there. So what's happened over the years is that the a lot of highway funding has been paid for by the gas tax, but it hasn't been enough to keep highways and bridges and so forth up to snuff. So The Biden plan puts more money in. Why does the government have a role in financing infrastructure? Why why can't infrastructure be built by the private sector? Well, there are examples of infrastructure being built by the private sector, but they are rare and few and far between. There are a couple, for instance, entire cities in India and I think in China that were built by private companies. Um, Everything, the sewer systems, the subways, everything. But in general, this is very hard to organize. And so when you have the private sector trying to build railroads or bridges or this and that, two things tend to happen. One, they tend to overbuild and go bankrupt. That was the history of (laughs) railroads in the 19th century in the United States, for instance. And they only want to build in the roads in the places where they think there's going to be a lot of traffic and therefore a lot of tolls, which means If you're living in a little farmhouse in the middle of the country, no one's going to want to build a toll road to you. If you're living in a poor, urban, blighted neighborhood, say in South Detroit, no one's going to want to maintain your roads because they don't think people there can afford to pay tolls. And so it's often fallen, um, rightfully so, I think, and most economists think, onto the government to, in those cases, produce these critical infrastructure objects, whether it's sewers, roads, bridges, because there isn't enough incentive in the private sector to get it done. So when we think about government producing goods like this, we usually call them public goods, okay? And a public good is what it sounds like. It's a, it's a good that, that many different people can use and that it's hard to sort of set up a, a fair or equitable system that forces people to pay. Yeah, that's right. So it's public in the sense that unless someone goes out of their way, it's wide open. Anyone can in the public can go use it. And this is true of our federal highway system, right? It's not gated. Anyone with a car can get on and off the highways. We don't have meters and tolls, you know, at every 
uh, forgive me for being a little gross here, toilet to uh, prevent you from using the sewer system unless you put in a quarter and flush the toilet. Oh, oh my oh my God, that's such a scary thought. Keep on going, Sean. But these are open resources, right? You build a port, and unless you want the Navy or the Coast Guard out there regulating who, who sails in and out of the port, it's basically open for anyone to use. And so in those cases, though, if it's open for anyone to use, then you get a lot of people who don't want to pay. They want to use the thing and don't pay. The same thing of uh, open air trolley cars, right? There used to be people called free riders. They'd sneak on, hang on to the back, hide from the toll collector and get to ride for free. But if you have too many of those people who don't want to pay, even though the service is valuable for them, the private sector can't make a buck. And so since you can't keep the free riders out, Another way to get the thing built and provided is the government uses general tax revenues, or as you said, the gasoline tax. They get the money from somewhere to provide these things, and then you don't bother trying to exclude people. You just leave it open and let anyone use it. Or what you can do at that point is sort of charge a fee, but then the fee doesn't actually have to cover the entire cost. So for example, you know, when you have airports, the planes that land do pay a landing fee. You as a passenger may be paying a fee to the airport too, but depending on the financing of that airport, it may or may not cover the entire cost of building the airport. The same thing for, you know, a lot of tolls for bridges, right? We build the bridge and then decide kind of what the optimal toll is, but you don't use the toll to sort of fund the bridge because as you sort of say, you end up with the problem that you only build bridges in the places that where people are rich. Yes. And there's a, there's a real fairness problem. So it's interesting, you know, I use the term public goods. There's also another term called quasi-public goods, which kind of gets at this mixed bag where you sort of have some stuff that is paid for by the government and some stuff that's paid for by user fees and and your financing is, is a mix. So just because we have a toll on a bridge doesn't mean it's not a public good. It means we're defraying some of the costs of the maintenance with the toll and perhaps not all of the costs. Yes, and the, the, the internet, and there, there are various things that look like this and broadband and Wi-Fi networks. So, some are, you know, subsidized by the government, paid for by the government, mostly private sector funding, but you wouldn't have as extensive, say, cell network that goes into um, rural areas in the United States without the government helping to pay for it. But as soon as the government does that, it's now a quasi-public good. It's interesting because broadband is is in the Biden plan, especially the question of rural broadband came up very strongly during the pandemic, where a lot of kids that were had to do school from home did not have sufficient broadband connections to do it, including my niece who lived in uh, rural Ohio, right? The broadband was just not good enough to make it for, for her schooling. And there's a lot of effort being paid to sort of build out the broadband with subsidies. On the other hand, broadband in urban areas can be built by pr- the private sector, paid for in the normal way by by subscription prices, by what customers pay. And so it's interesting, you sort of have a mix. In some cases, we have this combination of things that are the private sector and things that need to be the public sector. And we're trying to find where the exact boundary is. How can we do this in a way where you're not forcing the government to pay for things that the private sector will pay for, but then you don't make the private sector strain to sort of do things that really need to be subsidized. Yes, that's right. And so, yeah, because you don't actually want the private sector free riding on the government when the private sector could do this on their own. You want the government directing the resources, concentrating them on the stuff that the private sector wouldn't be able to get done on its own. Right. And so you could imagine that that the street outside was privately owned, but then you'd have to fund it through some kind of collection among all your neighbors, and some of them may not want to do it or so forth. It's just easy to do that, to have the local municipality do that street. Whereas it may very well be that your broadband, which runs up and down the same street, 
is better done by the private sector. Yes, and, and that makes this interesting and is part of the debate here as to what should or should not be in this infrastructure bill. It's not just what is infrastructure and what is not infrastructure, it's which infrastructure really deserves the government money here that you couldn't get built to a significant and extensive degree by the private sector. So let's talk about long-term impacts at this point, long-term and short-term impacts. You know, in the short term, a bill of this magnitude is going to create construction jobs. And it's going to be important for sort of getting us out of the pandemic recession. In the long term, and there's no debate about that. Nobody, nobody has any debate about that at all. There's much more of a debate about what the effects of infrastructure spending are on long-term productivity growth, whether or not infrastructure has more of an effect, spending has more of an effect or less of an effect than the private sector. What do you, what do you think about that, Sean? Well, there's some long-term ratios in the economy that su- suggest that it's uh, essential, right? If you look at the amount of output in the United States economy, number of dollars of GDP, say, and then you compare it to the size of the capital stock each year measured in dollars, that ratio, K over Y, as economists would call it, capital over is pretty constant over time. So that suggests that the only way you're going to get more output is with more capital. And this is the same thing as, does Batman need all the tools on his bat belt, right? If you want him fighting more crime, does he need more sophisticated, better tools on his bat belt? And since he doesn't have superpowers, the answer is yes, right? He's trained in Kung Fu or whatever he can fight, but he still needs his batarang and this and that. And so in general, I think economists would agree that you need more infrastructure, more tools, more capital in an economy if you want people to get richer over time. See, I thought you were going to go a different place. Does the Batmobile need better roads? <laughs> yes. Right. And yes. it does. It does. And it, and it, and it does. And it does. So I think, I think that it's reasonable to say that in addition to the short-term impact on jobs, that a big infrastructure bill is good for long-term U.S. productivity because it means that we're not going to run into the sort of problems you described where a bridge goes down, an important bridge goes down, an important waterway, where our electric power grid collapses, as it did in Texas, mm-hmm. you know, because we depend on our infrastructure. We depend on our broadband. We depend on our electric. We depend on our water systems. And one of the things that the pandemic pointed out was, in some sense, how vulnerable we are to a lot of these problems and how important it was to have a good broadband infrastructure and a good healthcare infrastructure and a good water infrastructure. So anything else you want to add for our listeners on the on the infrastructure question? Well, we're now well into the 21st century. And you could also make a point that, um, you know, we, we may not be the world's largest military power for long. China is rising. There are geopolitical threats here. And so another thing you'd want to spend money on if you're looking to the future and think it's dangerous, which I happen to, there's some, you know, not necessarily anything bad's going to happen, but you'd want to harden the infrastructure. You'd want to make sure that it is defensible against attacks from foreign adversaries with hypersonic missiles and dropping things from outer space from satellites, which seems to be like the next big thing. And so that's a- or, or, or cybersecurity attacks on the electric power grid, yes. which are closer than one might think. Okay, I think that's an excellent point about putting money into our infrastructure, not just to bring it up to where it was before, but actually to harden it, to improve it, not because we think anything's going to happen tomorrow or the day after, but as a matter of prudence. Yes, and, and I love that term, hardening the infrastructure, right? That, that's what we need to do a lot of. That, and also there's the electromagnetic pulse thing. You could have a solar flare at any moment 
that could short out most of the electrical systems of the United States, believe it or not. This happened in like the 1870s. But of course, there was very little electrical infrastructure back then, telegraph wires. So that's another reason is that the mother nature can be nastier than we think. That would bring us into the question of infrastructure for climate change, which we're not going to cover in this podcast, but is really very interesting as well. So uh, let's leave it off at this point. And thanks again, Sean, for a fascinating discussion, and hopefully that will be helpful for our listeners. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, Mike. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. In this podcast, we talk about the economics of infrastructure. As of early April 2021, President Joe Biden has just put forth his $2.2 trillion infrastructure plan, which covers roads, bridges, dams, electric, water, broadband, housing, education, and manufacturing, among other things. Many of our roads and bridges were built in the 1960s or even earlier. Much of it is getting towards the end of its useful lifetime and is breaking down rapidly. For example, out of about 600,000 bridges nationally, about one quarter are either structurally deficient or functionally obsolete. And so repairs are urgent at this point. The nation's infrastructure is extremely important for our productivity and for our jobs. People forget that modern automobiles are designed under the assumption that they're driving on nice, paved, smooth roads. If you let the roads go to heck, there's so much extra damage to the vehicles. Now here's a question. Why does the government have a role in financing infrastructure? In theory, the private sector could build roads and charge tolls, but then they would only focus on the richest, most populated areas. If you're living in a little farmhouse in the middle of the country, no one's going to want to build a toll road to you. If you're living in a poor urban neighborhood, it's also unlikely that anybody's going to want to build a toll road in that area unless it's being used by commuters also. Infrastructure is an example of what economists call a public good. That's a good or service that many different people can use, what economists call non-rival. And it's also difficult to set up a fair and equitable system that forces people to pay the entire cost of a public good. So you own your car, but at least up to this point, it hasn't been possible to charge you for every road or highway that you drive on. Though in theory, that's perhaps coming. Economists also use another term called quasi-public goods, which have some characteristics of both public goods and private goods. There are also some examples of private goods that receive some government subsidies. For example, broadband networks in the U.S. are mostly financed through private investment, billions and billions of dollars. But the government does provide some help for rural broadband, which otherwise would be uneconomic because there are too few homes per line. This podcast also discusses the impacts of infrastructure spending in the short term and the long term. No one disagrees that in the short term, infrastructure spending creates construction jobs and lots of them. There's much more debate, though, about whether public infrastructure spending has a big long-term positive impact on productivity, especially compared to private sector spending. But I think we can say that, generally speaking, fixing our decaying infrastructure is good for long-term growth. Finally, the podcast points out that our infrastructure, including the water system and electric grid, is too vulnerable to attacks that could leave us in the dark or without running water. So we have to spend money to harden our infrastructure against potential attacks, including cyber attacks that are becoming increasingly likely. On that somewhat gloomy note, thanks again for joining us and listen for our next podcast.